Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. I now possess the power to end hunger, to abolish disease, to eliminate crime, and establish a perfectly content and peaceful order world, all under the benevolence of my iron will. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are starting our dive into the last set of four outer planes that we have to cover. These are going to be the planes on the lawful side of the spectrum, and we're going to be starting off today with the infinite battlefield of Acheron, which is the plane of lawful neutral evil. This was actually a really fun plane to research and discover. Like everything else, as we'll talk about this plane on the surface, it seems very drab and very bleak, but there is so much storytelling potential in this layer. And the more you look at it, the more things you can kind of do and tweak and work with it. it I really had a lot of fun going through this for this week's episode. Yeah. And the creatures that are here, we're going to, of course, cover them at the end of the episode, but the creatures that are here are so intertwined with one another lore wise in a way that you don't really run into in the other planes right no yeah you have some really really cool creatures the ecology like i said rather bleak but it fits i had just a fun time kind of brainstorming like the characters you could find or throw into this plane that would fit so well because i love corruption or redemption stories and this is like the perfect place to run either one of those so it's just like i could throw so many characters in here so easily absolutely Absolutely. So Acheron is an eternal battlefield, as the full name of the plane implies. It's a place where the armies are constantly fighting one another in wars without end, or even the prospect of an end. You really do get what's on the label with this one. <laughs> yeah, that's it's exactly what it is. Of course, the primary battle that you have going on here is between the goblinoids and the orcs, and we're going to cover that in a little more detail a little later on. But there are also various rogue armies that just wander around doing their own thing and fighting whoever they happen to come across. So it is a plane where combat is the norm, where battles are the norm, where armies are clashing against one another regularly. If you're getting a little weary of your role play and you just want to do some monster slaughtering and throw dice on the table, bring the players here. (laughs) Yeah, this is the place where you can say it doesn't matter who you kill, go and murder Hobo for a bit. <laughs> get it out of your system. Go on. Yeah, just go get it out of your system. We'll return to our intrigue game in a couple of sessions. Just go kill some things. It's like the old uh, Donald Duck cartoon where he finds Huey doing Louie had bought the box of cigars. They had bought it for his birthday or something <laughs> like that. But he finds that they bought the box. So he makes them smoke them all at once and makes them all sick on tobacco. Which apparently was like a parenting tip back in the like 40s or 50s. So this is that version of murder hoboing. (laughs) Yeah, that is not advisable parenting technique at all in a modern context. So please don't do that. That's like teaching the kids to swim by just randomly throwing them into a lake. Well, they're going to learn eventually, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's not traumatize our children into swimming. (laughs) All right. So the plane itself is a plane of hard iron, strict organization, and violence. Those are the three... That's not metaphoric. No, those are the three literal building blocks of this plane. (laughs) 
hard iron, yes. strict organization, and violence. <laughs> All creatures that are present on Akron are compelled to do battle, to strive for advancement, and to cut down their enemies. So the only real emotions that you get with the petitioners here on Akron is those emphasized in war. So you have, you know, anger, hatred, jealousy, and envy are the ones that are specifically laid out. You're going to have a sense of camaraderie with your fellow soldier and a sense of what's the song from wicked uh about loathing i don't know i've not watched it like it okay wicked not wicked 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 <laughs> yes i think that's actually a bit of a small list again there's going to be a lot of cunning guile manipulation oh yeah These are there- other aspects of war too that generally get overlooked I'm a huge fan of Machiavelli, like the actual writings of Machiavelli. If you want to do some research for your plane, read up some of his stuff because it fits. Again, this is the place for it. (laughs) Absolutely. Because, yeah, you're going to have the manipulations behind the scenes of everyone trying to get one up on everybody, everybody to try and get that next promotion, to get that next rank, to get that next attaboy. It's even beyond that. At this plane, everything is a victory at any cost. Oh, yes. My quote I used for the intro to this episode is Dr. Doom, who happens to be one of my favorite Marvel villains, right up there with Venom. But Dr. Doom fits this well, too, because the things with Archeon, as we'll discuss, it is lawful, but it leans towards evil, but it's evil done in the name of law. Another thing that I thought of when I was reading through this is like the mega cities that you see in the old Judge Dredd, particularly the one with with Stallone, where everything was so incredibly strict, like you have your laws and the only punishment's death. You know, it is that. It is extremely cutthroat. It is very strict, very regimented, very Spartan. Yeah, that's a pretty good one for it. As James is mentioning, so Akron is the bridge between Bator, the Nine Hells, and Mechanus, the plane of order. That's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. So the evil that takes place in Acheron is almost an afterthought. It's a byproduct of this militant, tyrannical order. This is basically every fascist state ever. Yeah, that's what it, the way I was thinking is like, you see the movie where they have to declare martial law in the city. And then you, you've got that one grizzled old colonel who's been through like four or five wars. And he sits there and he just gets power hungry and goes over the top with everything. That's Akron. Yes. And this is one of the instances where I'm actually going to dip into 5th edition. The 5th edition DMG, despite only having one paragraph of description. One shiny paragraph. <laughs> one shiny, shiny paragraph. It's shiny because we never use it. <laughs> they have the optional rule for the plane in there. And the optional rule I actually really like because it lends itself to this constant combat, constant conflict mentality that you get in Acheron. And it's that whenever a creature reduces a hostile creature to zero hit points, they gain temporary hit points equal to half of their maximum hit points. That is a beautiful touch they did. I mean, every once in a while, 5e with these outer layers just knocks one out of the park. And and this is definitely one of those. Yeah, because especially if you have something like a barbarian or a fighter, somebody who's not reliant on spell slots, which when we get to how magic worked in second edition Acheron, oh, buddy, you don't want to be using spell slots if you don't have to. (laughs) Very true. But yeah, so somebody like, I mean, a barbarian would just have a 
field day. Oh, absolutely. In Acheron. They just wade into an enemy horde and just rage and lay about themselves and lay waste to entire swaths of armies. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because on this, it doesn't say how many times this can proc. So it's every time you reduce a hostile creature to zero, which means that, you know, if you have a barbarian that has 180 hit points, every time they drop a creature, they get 90 temporary hit points. And those temporary, which refreshes to 90 hit points every single time they drop a creature to zero. Right. So if you've got like a level 12, 13, 14, whatever barbarian, and then you just, Go walking through a field of goblinoids. You know, little tiny goblins. Just, oh, yeah. I am the reaper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Exactly. You you literally <laughs> could almost reach demigod status just with your HP. I mean, you'd have like in the thousands. Just keep, okay, just keep marking mm-hmm. them up. <laughs> well, effectively, yes. But temporary hit points don't stack in 5th okay. edition. Okay. So, so you would just be refreshing your temporary hit 90. points back. Back to okay. 90. So once you got that first buffer of temporary hit points, then you would be almost unstoppable, especially if you were able to pop a rage before you jump in, because now you're taking half damage, you're <laughs> dealing extra damage, and you know it keeps going every single turn as long as you're attacking something or something attacks you. And if that sorcerer major cleric decides to throw something that requires a wisdom save or a con save, We'll get to that later. (laughs) Yeah, that may not end very well for the caster. So anyway, getting back on track. The denizens of Acheron live on cubes. Cubes are these lumps of iron that float through the infinite void that makes up Acheron. Not all of them are specifically cube shaped. There are some that are eight sided or 12 sided or 10 sided. They're all geometric shapes. And so they all have an even number of sides and a uniform orientation. I'm not saying these strangely look like D&D die, but they kind of strangely look like D&D die. Most of them are, yeah. And again, if you really want to dive into some geekdom with me, my education was largely in chemistry and start getting into like crystal lattice structures and stuff like that. Again, you can have a field day with this. So if you want a deep dive, have fun. (laughs) And even if the body that you're viewing or that you happen to be on, isn't a six-sided geometric shape, they still call them a cube. It's for ease. They've got other things to worry about the name and stuff. Some of them are hundreds of miles across. Others are just a few feet across. And they often smash into one another quite catastrophically. So you can imagine what a 100-mile square per face cube of solid iron hurtling through space crashing into another cube of the same size and same material going at about the same speed would do. It's like a 50 car pile up in the 50s. <laughs> if you've ever seen that episode of Mythbusters where they squish the car with the rocket sled, <laughs> yes. it's kind of like that. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And then too, a neat thing about these cubes is like I said, everyone's on these and depending on the sides of the cube, you've got these whole armies or factions on each cube because that's basically their little domain. And as we'll get into some of the things, law is so strict and the group cohesion is absolute. And 
when these cubes meet, that is how they fight their battles. And so this is really kind of cool. You kind of get that whole landing ship mentality and mental image as you go. You could have your players all lined up and kind of going. And again, in this podcast, we do notably, obviously, talk about D&D as we have been. Something this leads itself really well to would be something like Warhammer 40k or those old actual military miniature games where you've got your art. You could just line them up and then roll your scatter die and have them kind of move to see where you're going to go. And I think that'd be a really fun way to do that. But again, that whole landing party, landing ship where you're on the thing, the cube hits, you can just have in your mind the little gate dropping like you see in the old World War II, like the invasions of Omaha. Yeah, the landing craft. Yeah. Yeah, where you're just, as soon as they hit, they're just discharging and rushing in. And now you've got something like, you know, the Battle of Minas Tirth or like Braveheart. You can do these huge epic battle scenes so easily. Just everything sets itself up perfectly for those kinds of battles here. Yes. So one of the things that you will notice if you are in Akron is that the cube that you are on feels stationary. Everything about it tells your senses that it is stationary and every other cube happens to be moving really quickly around it. Because everything's relativistic. <laughs> yeah, everything is relative. Even time is relative in Acheron. So one of the weird things that I found in second edition reading through is that time only seems to pass on a cube if it is within sight of other cubes. So if it gets bumped and just flies out into the void for 300 years before it circles around and comes back, the people on that cube will feel like it's been instantaneous right you know even though 300 years have passed that's kind of like the whole time dilation thing again talking about relativistic time and speeds and things like that again going back to my college days where i had to do physics and stuff you know particularly talking about relativity and again this whole plane just made my college geek just like oh my god i remember all this stuff i could use it for a game <laughs> it was <laughs> i had a ball with this i really did yeah. and that lends itself to the theme of the plane where the armies are in constant conflict with one another so yes there may be an army on that cube that just got shot off into the void but time isn't passing for that army and so whenever they get back they won't have spent 300 years sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for a fight they're going to get back and they're going to be rip roaring ready to go yeah because i mean again you're always ready as ian was saying it is part of that relativistic nature of everything which is again kind of a cool way to do things so everything about the cubes including any damage that they happen to take the rust patterns that form on their faces it all forms in straight lines with right angles which plays into the this is a plane of law right it is mechanist adjacent this is a plane of law right and so i like that too again everything's very rigid very predictable and again it just lends to that very stiff rigid this is the way things are not that there would be much art here but if there were any it would be very art deco or maybe cubalism again with those straight intersections clear lines nothing wavy nothing fancy schmancy it's just brutalism would probably be another thing you would see here mm -hmm. as well again just those harsh corners and edges everywhere yeah, but you're not really going to find art here because everything is function over form. This is true. So they're not going to take the time to make it look pretty. They're just <laughs> going to take the time to make it 
work. Right. Very Roman. Actually very Spartan. Yeah, it is very Spartan as well. Yes. Because, you know, the Spartans weren't exactly known for their artisans. They were known for their soldiers because that's what they did. And so because these cubes are solid iron, naturally nothing grows on them. You know, you don't have plants. There's nothing native that grows here. There's nothing invasive that grows here. There are a couple of exceptions, but they are specifically in the realms of deities. They're using the divinely morphic nature of the outer planes to shape their realm to allow food to grow. Yeah. Now, I did see one thing I would call a deviation. And again, it's not necessarily a natural ecology. But as we talked about, everything is largely on the surface of these cubes. But many of the cubes do have internal tunnels and warrens. You'd kind of say, kind of if you've ever played Dwarf Fortress, something along those lines, I would think. And they do eventually grow various myconoids, funguses, mushrooms, things like that. Yes. It's just enough to stave off hunger, starvation, and that's it. It is a very simple ration. I'm sure there's no flavor to it. I'm sure it tastes like rubbery cardboard, and that's it. So again, there's one other thing that actually is native to Acheron called Provender Stones. These were at least in second edition. I don't know if they made it into third edition or later editions, but in second edition, there are these things called Provender Stones, which are these weird cube-shaped black fruiting bodies that just sort of grow on the sides of these cubes. It's unclear whether they grow in the tunnels or on the surface. I think they grow on the surface. It is the polar opposite of a good berry. (laughs) They are, quote, edible, though just barely. Right. So they seem to constantly grow. They can get house-sized or larger. And these roaming armies in Acheron, search these out and will harvest them to feed their entire army. Yeah, because I mean, there's really nothing else to eat. Yeah, and the armies will harvest these seeds that grow on the inside of them, and they all have strict orders that whenever you harvest the seed, you immediately plant it. And if you don't, it is grounds for immediate execution because every army is dependent on these Provender Stones to feed their army. Again, pretty much there is one law for breaking the rules. There's only one punishment. Not quite that extreme, but it's fairly close. There are some other punishments for other cases, but yes, a lot of- They are the exception. (laughs) They are the exceptions. But it is also theorized in the second edition books that these Provender Stones, if left unharvested for long enough, eventually become the cubes that float around. That's so if you have a cool theory. Yeah, if you left them alone, they would eventually oxidize and become these iron cubes that would then break off and float out into the void and become a new iron cube that floats around this infinite void. That kind of answers a question that I would have had for later, because as we say, these cubes do constantly smash into each other and they do start to wear over time. So that would be how they replenish. I do want to say though, so since the surface of these areas of this plane is largely just flat bare iron, as we said, there's not a lot ecologically. There is a handful, a very sparse handful of native quote, quote, creatures to this plane. Other than that, it's petitioners. Primarily. Primarily, yeah. There's some visitors too, but yeah, I mean, there's very little as to what is naturally on this plane other than cubes and killing fields. Yeah, that is a pretty accurate statement. You do have a lot of mercenaries that come in here 
there are a lot of companies that look to find an army to fight with for a while in order to prove themselves to get a better gig. It is a way to earn your stripes if you can survive. Absolutely. If you can say that you survived four battles on Acheron, that's saying something. I'd pay that person. (laughs) Yeah. But you know they can follow orders. You know they can carry their own weight. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. But the devils in Bator regularly send envoys to Acheron to find battalions to recruit to fight for the devils in the blood war. So this is a prime recruiting ground for the devils. Yes. And another thing we'll find, you do still find a lot of the Yugoliths up here as well. Yes. And again, as they act as a mercenary faction group species through the blood war, again, this is a great way for them to train, to cut their teeth, to prove themselves. So yeah, a weird, what's the word I'm looking for? Field testing. Ha, there we go. Field testing. That's what we wanted. (laughs) Knew we'd get to it eventually. So because we happen to be big fans of races that are no longer present, (laughs) there's one that was a pretty prevalent force on Acheron that seems to at least be extinct now called the Hasator. They were a race of fiends. Not a whole lot is known about them. I wasn't able to find much of anything about them whenever I was looking it up, but they had these mobile fortresses that they built as a combination of architecture, technology, and necromancy that are referred to individually as a Hassatorium. So collectively, they should be called Hassatoria, just based off of, you know... Latin word roots. (laughs) Latin word roots. They chose not to do that in the second edition book, and I'm changing that because I'm a nerd. (laughs) So these structures are half living, half metal byproducts. These enormous quantities of slaves are just incorporated magically into the walls of these fortresses, and they are what makes them move. So there are literally thousands of slaves bound magically within the walls of these fortresses that drag them along on these giant iron skids again for my 40k players these are your necrons i mean absolutely pretty pretty much almost a one-to-one and for anyone who has been reading stormlight archive by brandon sanderson would recognize this as being similar to the bridge teams on a much much grander scale but that is the sort of feel that you get for this because these are slaves that are forced to carry them and a lot of them die in the process because when they run into another cube they're replaceable And whenever they fail to keep pace and they stumble and fall, they get smeared into a paste by the skids that are running along. And the line is, but even as they are smeared into a rusty paste, they serve to smooth the progress of the Citadel onward over the echoing battlefields. I believe Thomas Jefferson wrote something about this as the uh, cogs of the machine being greased with the blood of the workers. (laughs) I don't think he meant this literally, James. (laughs) So there are eight known Hassatoria functioning on the first layer of Acheron, but there's the wreckage of countless others that litter the scrap heaps of the second layer, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Because the first layer is the battlefield, and the second layer is basically the junk pile of everything that has been broken and discarded and fallen out from the battlefield as just sort of collected in the second layer. It kind of sifted through. Like if you have the multi-level sifts and you can kind of shake and you've got your big... Oh yeah, 
yeah, okay, checks yeah. a little smaller and a little smaller. Yeah, okay. I see where you're getting at with that. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now, now I will say personally, I have a hard time picturing layers when there's so much ether, for lack of a word, there's just a void, you know, these large void planes. And that's like, so how are you having a layer in the voids? I mean, is it like a stratospheric atmospheric layer or it's layered kind of. in, in principle, uh, not physical layers, but my brain wants it physical layers like a cake. Again, think of it like electron shells. Yes. So you have these layers where things happen and then there's a finite space between those layers where you are in transition and you can jump from one layer to another, but you can't really hang out in the in-between. That makes sense. And I love electrons, but I was really hoping for parfait. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody like a parfait. (laughs) All right. Moving on a little bit. Paths and portals. So the River Styx being the waterway that connects all of the lower plains is present in Akron, but it tends to appear and disappear almost at random. I'm sure that if you had somebody who was taking the time to catalog it and was able to map out where it appears and for how long and when they would be able to predict exactly where it was going to show up, exactly when it was going to show up and exactly how long it was going to stay before it disappeared. I don't think they could because again, where everything is relative and there is no firm point because all of the cubes are constantly moving at one rate or another. You'd have no actual landmark to say it popped up here every so often. You'd think with a plane of law, it probably would. But where everything's relativistic, there is no given landmark. But each individual cube is a finite, definable landmark. Granted, yeah. So it is going to be in relation to which face of which cube at which time. It's not going to be relative to its location in the void. It's going to be relative to what face of what cube at what time. See, I figured it was relative to where it was in the void. And if a cube intersected that point of the void, then the river appears at that point on the cube. It could. Yeah. So, I mean, the DM can run this either way. But yeah, yeah. so at that point, that is a bit of randomness. And it's weird to have randomness on a plane of law, especially as one as strict as this one is. Yeah. So I don't know. That's why I'm wanting to say that I'm sure that if someone were to take the time and actually try and do that, that it would be possible. That it should run on a schedule. I can grant you that. Yeah. You'd need a military strategist for that. You would need an entire army to do that. This is not something that one cartographer and his five little helpers are going to be able to pull off. This is something that would almost take like quantum computing in order to process the huge amount of data necessary to make this algorithm that would figure it out you know what that would actually make a decent story for this on this plane is maybe that's your party's job is to try to chart out where and when these portals or this point where the river sticks comes through and because even within the cube you have your armies there's factions within the armies that are constantly vying and going back and forth and so maybe a majority or a certain factions thinks this is a waste of resources and is trying to, one, eliminate your party, and then two, eliminate your party sponsors so they can grab more power on the cube. And at that point, you could use that as a way to start picking factions within your party. Yeah, you could do that. So there is one cube in particular called Rechtmerk, where the sticks is permanently present. Each of the six 
faces of this cube are different and each face reflects the plane that it is connected to. So you've got each face will connect to either the abyss, Bator, Carceri, Gehenna, Hades, or Pandemonium. Each face of this six-sided cube connects to one of the six other lower planes. And it is the only time that you can get onto a boat and know exactly where you're going to be going before you talk to the boatman. This is the exception to the rule. <laughs> yes. So this is how you would most likely get into Acheron. This is how you want to get into Acheron. Yeah, this is the safest way to get <laughs> yes. into Acheron. This is the best of pos- possible options. <laughs> yes, the best possible of all bad options. Yes. So the cubes are also linked with a series of portals that allow for instant transport between one cube and any cube that has ever collided with it. That's kind of fun. So the details aren't exactly clear on what this entails. It was almost like a throwaway line in the second edition Planescape books. I only found it once without any further reference. So I'm wanting to feel this out. And I'm thinking that it's going to be like at the center of the impact crater where these two cubes smash together. And if this is an especially old cube that has run into tens of thousands of cubes and as such has worn down the portals may no longer be on the surface they may be a hundred feet up okay off of the surface where the surface was whenever it was impacted and it just moves relative to the cube because it is tethering these two cubes together. That makes sense because a lot of the things I read about the portals to the cubes on Acheron was a lot of them were above the surface. And if you come through, you just drop to whatever the closest face is. So in this, I kind of get the mental picture. I remember the scene in Wreck-It Ralph where he drops into the game where it's the first-person shooter. It's almost like a first-person shooter version of StarCraft where they're fighting the bugs. And he just kind of falls face first into the whole, you know, military foray and everybody's kind of shooting over him kind of like starship troopers almost just kind of drop in face first and there you go pick a side because you're fighting right so aside from these portals that connect the cubes there are two types of permanent portals tethered portals and free floating portals the free floating portals are kind of like what james is suggesting is they're fixed in a location in the void. And whenever you pass through it into Acheron, you just start falling in the direction of the nearest cube. And if you don't have a way to fly, whenever you reach your cube, you take max fall damage, which is 20d6. That's when the DM pulls out all the dice. (laughs) That's when you just empty the brick and say, yeah, you squished. DM rolls for splat. (laughs) You know, the mosquito on the windshield. Yeah, that's you now. (laughs) But there are also tethered portals, which are portals that are affixed to a cube. And oh my God, these are important spots. Oh yes. So factions will find these portals and will station guards around these portals and will monitor them to keep careful tabs on who comes in, who goes out. They're going to keep people that they don't know away from them so that they can't use them. They're going to intercept and detain anyone who comes through it that they don't recognize. It's a big deal to have. Yeah, because ultimately anybody they don't know that's not part of their faction is just reinforcement for the enemy. Potentially, yes. Well, ultimately, yeah, because they are fighting everybody else and you don't know who is this. So 
yeah, I mean, that would be the mindset as anybody who's coming through that's not for me is against me. And if I don't know you, you're obviously not for me unless, you know, I can Shanghai you or conscript you or otherwise press you into service, which happens a lot too. A lot of these guards will sit there and they just grab whoever comes in. And as soon as they step through the portal, you're fighting with us now. Congratulations, you volunteered. Yep. So all of these permanent portals are spherical in shape and they activate by touch. And whenever you touch it, it resonates with a pitch to let you know where it leads. So a harmonious chord will lead you into Mechanus. A discordant chord will lead you into Bator. If it doesn't make any sound at all, it will go into Outlands. Okay. And gates that link to the astral plane or the other layers of Akron will resonate with a single note. It's probably going to be the single note that because in older editions, you used to have to have a tuning fork in order to use spells like Plane Shift. So it's probably going to resonate with whatever pitch you would have to have a tuning fork for to get to that. We discussed this kind of tuning when we did our episode on Pandemonium. I forget the center spire, but it was where all of those were because they all had a pitch to a note. And again, if you go back and you really want to geek out and get into old metaphysics a little bit with alchemy and mythology and things like that, mysticism in general, each of the planets and planes had their own pitch and note. Strangely enough, at the time they thought there were eight celestial bodies, sun, moon, and the planets. Strangely enough, there's eight musical notes. Imagine that. Kind of one of those cool things. So I could see very easily how this tied into each plane having its own musical pitch. Mm -hmm. And then you had modulations of major, minor, and all of that. Sharps and flats. Uh, Sharps and flats that would correspond with the individual layers in each of these planes as well. And then, you know, the material that you used for the tuning fork also mattered. Right. So you would end up having things like silver, gold, and platinum in the upper planes and tin and iron and lead for the lower planes. Yeah, iron and copper were big ones. Antimony, mercury for some of them. The mysticism gets kind of awesome for these. (laughs) And I think if I remember correctly, the, the astral plane was glass. Yes. There's an article, I think it's in Dragon 130 something. I have a copy of it somewhere where someone did an article with a whole table just saying these are all of the locations that have known tuning fork pitches. These are the materials of the forks and the note that you have to have it tuned to in order to use your teleportation magic to get here. Oh, I like that. I need to find that edition. Yeah, so I may try and scrounge that up and put that up on the Patreon in case you are curious. That'd be great. Anyway, talking about teleportation, magic in general in Akron. Is fun. (laughs) Oh, for certain values of fun. So Akron is very much based around Newton's third law of every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's so lawful, it's almost chaotic. (laughs) So every magical action in Akron has a magical reaction. So what one mage gains, another must lose. It's the law of equivalent exchange. It is. It is the law (laughs) of equivalent exchange for all of you Full Metal Alchemist fans out there. So this is one of the things that plays heavily into the conflict between the goblins and the orcs is that there is a law of conservation of spirits. So there is a finite number of petitioners that can be present in Akron at any given time. And when one combatant is slain, it opens up 
a spot and another soul for another petitioner appears in the plane. Ding. Pop. (laughs) So that's why they never take prisoners from the opposing army unless they are off-planar mercenaries or something. Right. If the goblins are fighting the orcs and the goblins manage to capture 10 orcs, they're not going to keep them prisoner. They're just going to kill them because if they kill these 10 orcs, that's 10 chances to get another goblin soul for their army. And that's how that works. And see, depending on the version you read, I read that it wasn't a chance. It was a straight one-to-one. If you killed your enemy, an ally basically spawned for you, which is why these kind of constantly go back and forth, but never really make a whole lot of headway because there is this natural stasis throughout the plane. Right. Because the only way to actually win would be to not play successfully kill all Everyone. of your enemy, right. which some people have tried to do and have come respectably close. I mean, they didn't quite do it, but they've made the good college try. So continuing on with the way that magic works, if you summon an ice storm, there's a firestorm that just sort of appears somewhere else. If someone is healed with healing magic, someone else takes that much damage. And so whenever you cast a spell, a magical reflection of that spell appears. It looks kind of like an ion stone. It's this little floating crystal. And whenever you cast the spell, it appears in your vicinity and then it zips off somewhere else. To do something, yeah. To do something. (laughs) To do something to someone. I think a really good modern example of this was actually in the first season of The Witcher when they have Yennefer at the Mages College and they're learning the chaos magic and they have the one girl and they're trying to make the flowers bloom and she doesn't direct where the chaos is going so it like rots her arm off. And yeah. then so they'd have the flowers so they can direct where that chaos went. You don't have so much of that option. You have a way to kind of do it in Acheron. You don't have as much control, but you do have that not chaos. It is your mere opposite. Your reflection of your power does get split and sent off on this. Yes. And so these reflections, you can catch them with special gloves or with a mage hand or Bigby's hand. And if you catch a reflection, you can use it to undo a spell by touching the target of the original spell with it. The examples that are given are if a creature gets polymorphed into a snail and you are able to catch the reflection and touch the snail with the reflection, they revert back to their normal form. If they get frozen by a cone of cold, they can be thawed and have all of the HP that they lost restored by catching the reflection and touching them with it. These reflections last for one hour per spell level of the spell that you cast. So something that is small, like a magic missile, is probably going to be too trivial to track down and try and reverse. But something big, like a wish spell. Oh my, that would definitely be something. You have nine hours to find the reflection of this wish spell and reverse it. Good luck. Oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. I got it. I got it. Ready? Buckle yourself in. Okay. Catching and reversing the wish spell, that kills a Tarrasque. Okay. Not sure what the Tarrasque is doing in Akron, but okay. Well, I mean, maybe it wandered through one of those portals. <laughs> Tarrasque hey, some, someone, someone, someone wished it into Akron. <laughs> yes. Just to get it away. You know, there wasn't specific. I just want you off this plane and pop in Akron because, you know, yeah. they weren't specific. Oh, I'm thinking someone in Akron says, you know, 
I wish the Tarrasque to appear on that cube in the middle of that army. It would absolutely be an Orcus Priest of Grumash. Yeah, an Orcus Priest of Grumsh is going to do that and summon the Tarrasque into the middle of Maglubiot's army. Yes, and then absolutely. so they have to go and find it and touch the Tarrasque with it within nine hours. <laughs> or even if the army kills it, because again, that's the only way to actually kill it. And then maybe the orc party wants to find it to resurrect it on that cube. So they have to kill it again. No, because it would reverse the wish. But the so, wish was on a material plane, so that wouldn't happen. But if you... No, I'm, I'm saying okay. that the wish is originating in Acheron. Okay. Well, I was thinking the wish would originate on the material plane, and maybe that is how the cleric is gaining favor with Grimouche, is he wishes it to Acheron, where it would slaughter a bunch. Because Grimouche, we'll talk about later, Grimouche is actually found on Acheron himself. So yes. therefore, it's adding to his armies. So if the goblinoids did finally drop this horrible monster and use the wish to permanently put it down, now it it is a Gorkish mission to find that wish and resurrect that Tarrasque once again on the plane of Akron. Yeah, that could be it. Sorry, a complete aside, kind of fun. I want to do it just because <laughs> chaos. <woo. laughs> One thing I did want to bring up that I had not seen, and I'm not sure exactly how to work this up. What would be the magical reflection of Mage Hand or Bigsby's Hand? Um... That's a good question. Because I never saw that one. I'm like, so, I mean, every magic spell obviously has its reflection. So I wonder what the reflection for that would be. We'd actually have to kind of pour through the old books, the old spells to see what we could find to see what would be the best fit. Maybe catapult? It could be it could be catapult. <laughs> you cast Mage Hand and some random object is yeeted into the void. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> anyway, when two cubes collide with one another... In the immediate aftermath of the collision, you can't cast spells that have material or somatic components because the reverberations and aftershocks from the actual collision are so severe that you literally just can't control it to actually hold on to your fiddly little material components to do the intricate hand gestures of the somatic components to actually accurately cast these spells. That makes sense and I like it. If you've ever unfortunately been through a significant car crash, you know, I've been in a couple of them unfortunately. And one of the first times, you know, I told people I was okay afterwards, but I got hit from behind the person was going like 40 miles per hour while I was at a stop. And I told him I could feel my soul move, you know, just that core, that internal. Yeah. And you're stunned and you are dazed. You're not right for a day or two after a good car accident or not a good car accident, but a, a more severe car accident. You're just shook. Yeah. Again, as we talked about going back when we were talking about our barbarian having his heyday, if you were trying to cast something that would cause, you know, again, a con save, a wisdom save, you know, a strength check, anything like those, you have to realize what that opposite would do. So if you cast something that maybe calmed him or took mental control, then the reflection of that would enrage somebody else, or maybe you would lose, someone else would lose mental control. And as a DM, I mean, if this person is a large person doing a lot on the field, then it should probably reflect to go to someone just as important on the other side. So again, where we talked about you really want to be careful on how you're rolling those skills or those spells that cause ability checks and things like that. It comes back to this with that reflection. You have to be prepared for the counterstroke, as it were. Yes. All right. So getting into the individual schools, starting off with conjuration slash summoning. 
summoned creatures must follow the letter of your every command, but usually strive to avoid the spirit of your command. Hashtag malicious, what is it? Malicious. Malicious compliance. Yes, which is everything I love about everything. (laughs) So no order given to a summoned creature can be disobeyed. They literally have to obey you, but they're going to obey the letter, not the intent. I hope you have experience with fairies. (laughs) Yes. So as such, elementals, fiends, and other summoned creatures are usually used as suicide run shock troops to break strong points and strategic locations in these battles. But these summons are not without cost. As part of the summoning, the summoner has to offer up a hostage for the duration of the summoning that will take the place of the summoned creature for the duration that they are in Acheron serving you. And again, that goes back to where we talked about. You have that limit of spiritual essence allowed within the plane. So if you're summoning something and something else has to kind of be put in a stasis, if it's only temporary, you have a temporary stasis because it still balances that number of spirits or souls on the plane. Right. Um, so the offered hostage in this exchange gets the chance to make a saving throw to avoid having this happen. And if they succeed on that, then the summoner has to also make that saving throw. And if they fail, they take the place as the hostage and the summoned creature shows up, but has no one to command it. And so it just gets to do whatever it wants. Which, yeah, is probably smashing things or depending on the intelligence of the summon creature, might want to live as long as it possibly can just to dick over the summoner. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would do personally. And then finally, if both the offered hostage and the summoner succeed on their saving throws, the summoning spell just fails. That happens. Continuing on to divination. Divinations can never be used to spy on opposing forces. The plane's nature enforces the use of careful scouting and encourages surprise attacks. So you're actually going to be using actual traditional military techniques and tactics to locate your enemy, create a strategy of attack and then try and get the upper hand on them and hit them as hard and fast as you can. Stealth and guile are important. Magic is cheating. Magic is cheating. But this only affects things of military significance. So civilians, adventuring parties, objects, and locations without strategic value, you can scry on those all day long. So if you want to maybe scry on the general's pen, that could probably happen. And if you overheard something, then oops. Again, that would be a DM call. If my players had the forethought to try to work that out, I would allow them a little something at least. Because again, guile and cleverness should be rewarded. Yeah. Omens are also very common in Akron and are often skewed to show the worst possible result because it is a plane tainted with evil. And any omen that is read applies to the target's entire group, not just the individual being divined for. And as such, any diviner that reads too many bad omens gets real chopped up real quick. <laughs> yeah. Generally, people don't like getting bad news by and large. And now this is the one that I thought was really cool. Necromancy. So Akron is a great place for summoning an army of undead because while you remain in Akron, there is no cap to the number of undead you can have follow you. I mean, theoretically, because the spirit has already departed the 
body yeah that makes sense as long as you can get to bodies you can continue to create undead and because of the nature of the plane your undead will remain 100% loyal and obedient to you this is what we call a lich's playground yes but the effectiveness of the spells are dependent on whether the caster's, quote, life force is greater than that of their target, which is to say, in mechanical terms, have you got more hit dice than what you're trying to cast it on? Right. If you have more hit dice than the target, the spell always works. If you have fewer hit dice than the target, you take damage equal to twice the spell's level instead. So if you were trying to cast Finger of Death at something that had more hit dice than you, you would end up taking damage instead and they would have nothing happen to them because their life force is greater than yours. So this is particularly nasty, especially in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd edition when your wizard's hit die was actually a d4 versus the d6 it is now. Those extra, you know, two faces add up to an actual lot over time. Yeah, but this was hit dice, not hit points. Right, but okay. Yes, exactly. But what I'm saying is if you cast a fourth level spell and you're taking eight hit points and you only have a D4 you were rolling with because also people didn't get maximum hit points each level or even at first level in the older editions. So your health pull as a wizard was, and even a sorcerer was generally pretty meager in the earlier editions, that could come at a heavy, heavy cost. Yeah, you could be a 15th level wizard and not have triple digit hit points. Easily, very easily. Easily. You could have like 60 hit points. And yeah, I mean... And Actually, fact, six, pro- 60 hit points would be... Would be max with zero con. Yeah. Yeah. So you probably, honestly, on average, had closer to 30 to 45 at 15th level. Mm-hmm. So again, if you cast a ninth level spell and it backfired like that, there's half your hit points just on a failed spell. Oh, yes. (laughs) Again, choose your spells wisely. Right. Wild magic, wild mages in second edition were effectively two caster levels lower than normal while they were in Akron, which means that they would lose access to the spell slots that they would normally have. They would lose access to the higher level spells that they would normally have. They would be two levels lower in everything but hit points. Stay off my plane of law. Go away. Yes. (laughs) Additionally, Wild surges never happen in Akron. You simply cannot have a wild magic surge in Akron because the law of the plane prevents it. Okay, so I'm coming up with story arc right now. So you're in Sigil and maybe people in Sigil have gone out from the material plane. They have some sort of connection and they are trying to collect all of the wild magic sorcerers and they're trying to bring them to Akron where they are going to be quote quote safe because the best villains have the best intentions at heart they just do it terribly and so taking this horribly dangerous person and bring them to a place where they're just they're going to be safe they can't hurt anybody unwillingly they can still practice their magic and it's not going to backfire on them and they're not going to lose control yeah that's a perfect reason so maybe your party's here to stop that maybe rescue a specific person brought here but yeah i mean you could set up a whole storyline just with that right there i think would actually be a fairly good story to run yeah especially if they're not telling you where they're taking them oh yeah even better i mean this is going to be one of those they're going to call it like sanctuary yes to pull in a mass effect 3 reference anyway (laughs) continuing on because we keep getting sidetracked i'm sorry Oh, they're fun. They're fun (laughs) sidetracks. The last school in second edition, uh, Elemental Magic. Elemental spells behave weirdly in Akron. Earth Elemental spells 
fail to function. They have no effect whatsoever on the iron cubes because they're metal and not earth. Fancy that. Fair enough. Air spells function on the surface of the cubes, but not in the tunnels and chambers inside of cubes. Water spells, on the other hand, work just fine inside of cubes, but if you cast them out on the surface of the cube, they instead only create rust in a 10-foot radius per spell level. Okay. And then fire works everywhere. And if you cast it where the metal of the cube is in the area of effect of the spell, it functions as the heat metal spell on the cube, affecting from that point in a 10-foot radius per spell level. That stands to reason. I think for 5th edition, I would actually make it to where thunder spells would have no effect because there's so much clamor and clashing either from the battles or the cubes colliding but lightning based spells might have double range because if it hits the metal it's going to conduct i mean those would be dm changes i would probably make after giving a little consideration i would almost want to do like uh lightning spells have an innate splash that would work as well. So whenever you hit a target with lightning damage, maybe do a con save. Creatures within a certain proximity would also take lightning damage. Yeah. Just that, from being in proximity. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because it's shocking. Yes. <laughs> All right. So that pretty much takes care of the magic rules for Akron as a whole. Let's get into talking about some of the gods here on Akron because there are a few. Just a few. Not a lot, though. Not near as many as there have been on some of these other planes. The first one, the one that is very prominent that I was not expecting coming in, is actually a god from the Chinese pantheon called Lei Kung, the Duke of Thunder. I actually did a little looking up on this guy because I had no idea who in the world he was. And I don't have the one second edition source book that he's got an actual entry in. Okay. But... This is an actual deity in, I guess it would be Taoism, I think. I I could be completely wrong on that. But this is an actual Chinese deity that was adapted into uh, D&D. So he carries around a mallet and a drum, which he uses to create the thunder. And he also carries a chisel, which he uses to punish evildoers. That's a very specific tool and a nasty one for that purpose. Too um, damn. (laughs) And from what I was able to discern... He is a god that is called on to seek retribution against people who have wronged you. Okay, fitting for this plane. And he is sent by the other gods to bring punishment to people whose crimes or whose sins are hidden from the public view. Okay. So if they are sinning, if they are committing their sins in private where no mortal is seeing them and the gods catch wind of it, they send him after them to bring judgment upon them. Okay, I think the Greek equivalent of this would probably be like Nemesis. Yeah, I can see that. So he rules from his realm, which is called Resounding Thunder, which is a really cool place. And we'll get to that next week whenever we're talking about individual locations in the plains. But it's this is a city built in a giant thunderhead that floats through between all of the cubes. It is the only realm in this entire plane that is not devoted to war. So there are a lot of deserters and traitors and cowards that are fleeing from the battles that seek out resounding thunder. Okay. His petitioners tend to be executioners, mercenaries, bounty hunters, and others who serve the cause of retribution. So definitely a lot of paladins are going to come through here. A lot of Oath of Vengeance paladins. Yes. I could also see him being a pretty strong warlock patron as well, especially those that multi-class. 
yeah a vengeance paladin who takes a one or two level dip into warlock oh yeah yeah like a hexblade warlock with a vengeance yeah definitely through here oh yes oh yes fun (laughs) and his petitioners sometimes leave in armies of retribution that strike out against Lei Kung's enemies, and they are universally feared across Acheron because they fight with the conviction of zealots who believe that they will be unified with their god if they fall in battle while seeking vengeance. Yeah, that's always a scary force. <laughs> yeah, there is nothing scarier than an army full of religious zealots who are willing to die for their cause. Very, very true. So time for the main event. The two major combatants in Acheron are Grumsh, One-Eye, the god of the orcs, and Maglubiet, the god of the goblinoids. They are in eternal conflict against one another. As they'll do. So Grumsh is on his own cube with the other gods of the orcish pantheon. Maglubiet is on his cube, which faces Grumsh's cube. That's really hard to say. (laughs) So Grumsh is opposite Maglubiet's cube. Let's put it that way. Let's take the coward's way out here. (laughs) And so Maglubiet is on his cube with his two lieutenants, Kurgobayeg, who is a god of goblins. And he's the lieutenant that commands all of the goblin forces. And then Nomagaya, who is the god of hobgoblins, who is the lieutenant that covers all of the hobgoblin forces. And if you want to have a nice flashback, we covered these three a bit in depth when we did our first episodes. We did our cleric. We had a hobgoblin cleric for our showcase. And so we did a bit of a dive on the religion of the various goblinoid races. And so if you want to go back and revisit, I believe that was episode seven and eight, perhaps I'd have to double check. Possibly. Yeah, go back. It was one of our first episodes. So again, a nice bit of recall for us. Yeah. So outside of that conflict, you also have Ladugar, the god of the Dark Dwarves, the Dwargar. He makes his home on a realm on the second layer in and around a location called the Mines of Marcellin. Um, Ladugar was cast out long ago by the other dwarves in the Dwarven Pantheon in Mount Celestia. And so he and his petitioners, who are all dark dwarves, they mine the black iron of the plane and forge it into weapons to defend his realm against the other armies. So they basically just dig in and hold their ground. I kind of feel bad for the Dwargar. They always get the worst end of every stick. They do. They really absolutely do. Yeah, they're a little nasty, but I mean, compared to like the drow, and then they totally get enslaved by the drow. They get kicked around by the other dwarves. I mean, they don't get any love anywhere. You know, we need to make a good refuge for the Dwargar. Nice little sanctuary for them where they can be happy. Maybe have some sun, sip some pina coladas. I I don't know, but (laughs) I feel bad for them. (laughs) You'd be grumpy too. Seriously. (laughs) If you had the Dwargar's lot in life. We're digging deep, doing dwarf stuff. Then the rest of the dwarves kick us out okay fine we'll go dig and just do hey look there's a bunch of drows hey look we're drow slaves now woo freaking who (laughs) another god that is mentioned in second edition is 
Amatsu Mikaboshi, which is actually a not quite God, not quite spirit. It's almost like a primordial force in Japanese lore. Okay. Amatsu Mikaboshi is commonly depicted as almost a Satan figure in certain Japanese lore and is apparently a fairly common go-to in video games and comics and such whenever they need to draw in an evil antagonist for their story. You know, kind of like Hades is always the one that's picked on whenever you do a Greek story. Gotcha. Okay. And it's never specifically stated, but he is a god of trickery and supposedly rules over everything that is done in darkness. So everything that is done under the cover of darkness is his domain. And he is believed to be the patron of the Bladelings, which are a race of humanoids that we will get to at the end whenever we start talking about the different creatures and races that are present. So he kind of got ninja god? Kind of, I guess. Maybe, again, just that whole done in darkness. I see very sneaky and underhanded, perhaps. I mean, a good go-to. I have to say, I've not heard of this entity before, so. Yeah, I did a little bit of reading and didn't really glean a whole lot. Gotcha. Okay. Going into third edition, there are two other gods that are specifically mentioned as being here. Hextor, who is a god of war and tyranny. He's the brother of Heronius, who is a lawful good, has a lot of paladins sort of god from third edition. And he has a realm called Scourgehold on the first layer. He takes the form of this gray-skinned, six-armed humanoid person bearing a weapon in each arm. And at the heart of his realm is a structure called the Great Colosseum, which is this miles-wide arena with multiple levels made from beaten bronze and glass, where all of his petitioners are just constantly drilling and fighting and training. Okay. And the other is Weejas, who is the goddess of magic and death. I was strangely a fan of Weejas. Was she killed off in 4th edition? No, it was Nerul. Nerul is the one that, that got killed by the Raven Queen. Yes. Although there is some debate over whether or not that is actually canon. Ooh. So I don't know. I That'd don't be a know. fun thing to dive into. But Weejas makes her realm the Cabal Macabre on the lowest layer of the plane. And her realm is surrounded by this massive castle of ice. And the crenellations on the walls of this castle depict the skeletons of every single race in the multiverse. Snazzy. Yeah, I thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've covered the gods that are here there were a couple more i did want to throw in that did not pop up in the lore again talking about this when i was reading through one of the things that kept popping up with archon is it is a war for the sake of war they fight just to fight so it is your rebels without a cause it is your warriors who fight for the sake and glory of fighting so modern or contemporary gods that would be good to throw in here first two I thought of was Ares and Mars. Definitely both belong in here. The Irish Morrigan, I think, would be a really good form. At least one of her, one or two of her forms. You know, she was the maiden that would sing and drive everybody into that battle frenzy. And then she could take the form of either a single or a flock of crows to feast on the dead afterwards. She would be right at home here as well. Oh, yes. We're going to talk about exactly why that second one is really good in a little bit. But now that we've talked about the gods, 
let's take a minute and talk about the petitioners of Akron. The bulk of the petitioners that you're going to have are going to be orcs, goblins, and hobgoblins. Strangely enough. That's going to be 90% of your petitioners here. I would probably throw a good number of bugbears in here as well. Uh, just because the bugbears tend to do so much with the goblinoid forces and armies. Except that, at least in 2nd edition, where I'm pulling the bulk of this older lore from, the bugbear gods are in pandemonium. Okay. Now, again, my introduction with the bugbears were later, so I didn't realize they had their own deities. I always group them in with the rest of the goblinoids. So in that case, no. Okay. Boot them out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they go to the realm of one of the bugbear gods on, I think it was the second layer of pandemonium. Gotcha. Um, so the Dwergar will also come to Akron in service to Ladugar, but also within Akron, you're going to find the souls of these soldier of fortune types. So the soldiers that are soldiers because they're good at it. They're not doing it for any you know, greater cause. They're there because I'm a trained killer and I kill because I'm good at it. So basically every 80s action hero. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) As I mentioned a little while ago, it is specifically designed not to become densely populated with petitioners. There is a finite number of souls that can be here. There's a book that is referenced called the Book of Bindings. It's in the Hall of Records in Sigil. And a passage that they quote from that book is, the absolute number of spirits in Akron is a conserved quantity. The number can neither increase nor decrease. For this reason, the armies of Akron take no prisoners. Each enemy they slay provides an opening for an allied warrior's soul to enter. The massacres of Akron will never end until all the petitioners of one side or the other are slain. But this number doesn't take into account the living creatures that come in from other planes, so the armies will often spare mercenaries that they capture for no other reason than to hire them or press them into service on their army to bolster their numbers. Makes sense. I mean, again, if you can use an outsider to kill more of the other guy, then that's more souls for you to fight with you anyway. So may as well make use of them. Yeah, absolutely. No need to throw away a perfectly good resource. No. So there are rogue armies, as I mentioned a little while ago, that do roam the plane. The primary forces, of course, are Grumsh, Maglubiet. Uh, Lei Kung also has armies that roam around from time to time, but he doesn't actually take part in most of the wars. They're usually sent out with a specific goal in mind, and when they're done, they go home. And then Hextor, starting in 3rd edition, he has an army that he will send in and mess with people from time to time. Sometimes armies get separated from their command structure. Either they go to the wrong cube, or you know they get bumped off to another cube i could see a cube um, getting sheared off honestly depending on how they collide yeah it, it is possible yeah that. yeah you have a whole little founders um, effect thing that'd be kind of yeah. cool <laughs> uh these armies usually devolve into mutiny and madness and after they collapse there's usually one of two groups that will rise up you'll either have a ragtag band of scavengers that survives by taking supplies from others by force until they run into a force that's too big for them and they get finally eliminated. Or you get a mass of undead or automatons that are following the command of a single powerful cleric or wizard. So you can flip a coin. You're either you're either playing Evil Dead or Mad Max. Yes. <laughs> and given the way that time works with the cubes, it's possible that there's still an army of Hasator out there with a Hasatorium that are just waiting 
to return. That would be a good way to throw them back in. Yeah, no, I like that. So the most famous rogue army in Akron is an undead army commanded by the Lich Beretti, the Necromancer King. His solitary goal is to rule his own realm as a god. So his gotta have goals. Yeah, his whole purpose is I'm going to keep raising the dead to fight for me until I get to a point where I outnumber everybody and I have amassed enough power to become a god. Gotta love that no HD limit. Another rogue army follows a nameless Kuotoa emperor saint who got lost in the river Styx and ended up in Akron with his followers. So you've got this army of Kuotoa that are wandering around Akron. All of his forces have been mummified and are sustained by the intervention of their Kuotoa goddess. So they're these dried out, desiccated fish people soldiers that can also desiccate their foes by touching them. Everything about this plane lends itself to Warhammer, either fantasy or 40k. Really, this is a perfect plane if you want to do a D&D 40k crossover, or you just kind of want to pick up something new for 40k, this really is the perfect place. And then the third famous rogue army is the House of Red Dirk, which is an army of bladelings. They supposedly were seeking out a haven on a cube, and they haven't found that cube yet. And reports from those who have survived encounters with them say that half of the army is comprised of blade golems, and the other half are well on their way to becoming blade golems due to the assistance of rogue Modron mechanics. Oh, I fucking love them. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently... The other bladelings in Acheron have a standing bounty of 88,000 gold Byzants to anyone able to locate this army and lead bladeling scouts to it. Snazzy. I'm not sure what the exchange rate between a Byzant and a gold piece is, but I like it. I think a Byzant is a gold, a gold piece. piece. Okay. So 88,000 gold if you can find this army and lead a bladeling scout to to it and survive the process <laughs> yes well of course that, yes. that goes without saying yeah but speaking of rogue modrons there is a modron secundus which are the second only to primus the head of the modrons and so in i'm working on the who is, mechanist there's only two of them no there's no three. there's four of them there's four there's four secundus okay there's four secundus okay. so they're because the total number is the square of the number that of the rank okay that is correct yes so the Deca whatevers, there's a hundred of them. And then the Nonas are 81. Then, and on down, and, that is and correct. On, yes. on up like that. So following Orcus moving in and killing Primus and sitting down in the energy pool in third edition and sending out the rogue march in search of the wand of Orcus, some of the Modrons got corrupted by evil because... It was Orcus. And so this one particular Secundus challenged the other Secundus who was going to be promoted to the rank of Primus whenever Orcus finally up and left. Right. And I believe we talked about this duel. We did. In, yeah. In the Mechanist episode. episode correct. Um, so long story short, the other three Secundi basically told this one, no, you're not getting it. And he said, well, then I'm going to take my toys and leave. And so he took all of the other corrupted Modrons with him and left to Acheron, where he is currently mustering and growing his forces with the sole intent of returning to Mechanus, to Regulus, to seize the power of Primus for himself. 
as they'll do. Now, I will say, as we talked about mechanists, there is not a lot of mining in mechanists when one Modron or entity from mechanists breaks down. It's generally recycled and reused. Here, they're farming raw resources, so they're getting numbers. Oh, yes. I, I could see this. I really hope this pops up again in later editions. Yeah. So the Modrons, as a general rule, do maintain a presence especially on the lower levels of Akron. It is rumored that the cogs of Mechanus are actually mined from the cubes of Akron, and that once the Modrons have succeeded in harvesting all of the cubes of Akron, the Great Wheel will break, resulting in a new multiverse in the form of the Modron's perfect divine machine. I like it, and that gives us our fifth, our sixth multiverse option now. <laughs> right. There's a bunch of them. Yeah, there's a ton. So another faction here are the Mercy Killers. They are also referred to as the Red Death. They are... I kind of like these guys. You would like these guys. <laughs> They're a faction out of Sigil. Their headquarters in Sigil is the prison. Whenever you have judge, jury, executioner, the Mercy Killers are the executioners. They believe that mercy is a weakness and that extenuating circumstances are merely excuses concocted by the weak-willed and criminals. Hard to argue. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever you are within Akron, they will offer food and lodging to any offworlder in exchange for a set term of service in the Mercy Killers. So you are basically indenturing yourself into service in order to not starve to death. You're not going to starve to death. You do get, again, you do get some lodging. And really, if you're coming to Akron, at least you know what faction you're joining in this way versus, you know, splatting on a rock and joining whatever cube you fall on. If you're going to come here, at least you can pick. And you might get really lucky and you get assigned to the vault there in Carceri. <laughs> and then you just sit in this metal box and guard prisoners against threats that are not going to come until your term of service is up. It's an easy term. <laughs> service guarantee citizenship. Would you like to know more? <laughs> yes. There's also a large contingent of Yugoloths here within Akron. As we mentioned when we were talking about Hades, there is a great big contingent that decided to move out of Hades and into Akron for whatever reason. Nobody knows exactly where they're located. It's assumed that they have a hidden city that is within one of these cubes, but no one knows where it is. No one has found it, or at least no one has found it and then come back from looking. So people may have found it and they just went missing because the Yugoloths didn't want them to know where they were. It's like that Bladeling Golem army. <laughs> yeah, kind of. There are also several Rakshasa clans that rule multiple cubes, each one of which is hidden by illusions, and the whole contingent is ruled over by a powerful Rakshasa Maharaja. Try to say that one five times fast. There you go. Now, that is one thing that did not pop up when we were talking about magic effects would be the effects of illusion magic in the illusion school. I wonder how those would work. I don't know. Eh, we'll ponder it later. And they are known to kidnap petitioners and other planar travelers to serve as slaves in their grand mansions because they're rakshasas and they do that. That kind of reminds me of, what was it, The Chosen in The Wheel of Time? Uh, yeah. I kind of get that feel from them. Yeah. And then finally, the last faction here are the Bladelings. They're considered native. They're not originally from Akron, but they have been here long enough and their physiology has changed enough to where they are now considered a native race. Many of them work 
for this mad wizard that is uh, on the third layer known as the Hopping Mage. And he has his mage tower called the Hopping Tower that boingy boings about the plane. It's no house on a chicken leg, but it'll do. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Baba Yaga, but it's the next best thing. (laughs) They're often mistaken for golems, but they're actually metallic creatures more akin to Warforged. So they have that sort of physiology to them. They're Cybermen. <laughs> They're a little more organic than Cybermen. I was going to say, where's the doctor? They prefer to keep to themselves, and they're led by a shaman named Iron Feather, who rules from a hidden city on the fourth layer of Acanthus. And that's about it for factions. <laughs> so now we're going to get into some of the creatures that you can find here in Acheron. This is the last section, which is good because, as always, this is going long. But there are some really, really cool things here. So first off, you've got the forces of Grumsh. So you're going to have orcs. You're going to have orogs, which are these, in some references, are called elite orcs. They're basically half orcs, but the other half is ogre. Snazzy. So they tend to be bigger and stronger than even regular orcs. And then you have, on the other hand, the forces of Maglubia. So you get your goblins and your hobgoblins. As you will. As you will. So the first of the really cool critters that you run into here are called the Akirai. They're these really weird things. They're these massive 15-foot-tall birds. They kind of resemble a quail or a parrot or kind of like a kiwi almost because they are a flightless bird. It's the dodo from Looney Tunes. Kind of, kind of, yeah. (laughs) But they have four legs and vestigial wings. They are also intelligent and capable of speaking infernal and plain speak, which is the planescape version of common. So they've got this sort of tribal structure. They travel in flocks of two to eight members and they have this penchant for torture and a need to seek vengeance against those who they perceived have wronged them. And they have a very strong connection with these creatures called rust dragons, which we're about to get to, in the same way that humans have a strong connection with dogs. That's kind of terrifying. Holy crap. Yes. And whenever they are wounded and need to make an escape, they are capable of belching out this cloud of black gas that induces madness and confusion. All right. Yeah, these things are crazy. Because they weren't weird enough. They are the Lincoln's Dodo. I love them. A little (laughs) evil. Kind of crazy. There you go. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, now we have Rust Dragons. In 3rd edition, they were turned into just another type of dragon, but that's boring. Yes, very. I don't like that. We're going back to 2nd edition for this one. So, they look like normal dragons. But better. Except they have butterfly wings. They have Rust Monster antennae coming off of their chins. And their teeth are actually jagged portions of exoskeleton. They can feed on the iron cubes, but it's kind of like gruel to them. It's filling, but really bland. And they're always looking for a chain, something different to eat. They love magical items. They love specially forged metals. So like things armor. like mithril and adamantite. They like that sort of stuff. They're often colored like metallic dragons, but always look like the metals have been oxidized. So the copper ones appear green with verdigris. The silver ones look tarnished black. The Brass ones are going to have this brown patina to them. And otherwise, they act exactly like any other dragon. They're a little bit low on the intelligence spectrum for dragons. I think they actually average out at about a 6 out of 20. So they're coming under the white dragons even. Yes, but there's a reason for that. 
rust dragons are actually the adult form of rust monsters. Rust monsters on the material plane lay a clutch of eggs, the eggs hatch, and then they fend for themselves. And most of them die before they reach full maturity. And the way that it works is once they get old enough, if they survive long enough, they're able to return to Acheron, where they immediately find the first iron cube that they can have access to and they gorge themselves on this iron cube and they will gorge themselves for a full year and then they will spin this metallic cocoon around themselves go into hibernation for three years and when they emerge they're rust dragons they really are the pokemon of dragons (laughs) yeah I mean, I love this because we see these creatures on the material plane and we see obviously a larval stage and an adult stage. And well, surely that's the full life cycle. The fact that they leave the material plane and continue their life cycle, I think is a really, really cool aspect of these things. So the Akirai use these rust dragons to create tunnels within cubes whenever they move. And they're able to create these harnesses that they can strap to these rust dragons that they can use to travel from cube to cube. So whenever they decide that they need a change of scenery, they can get on their rust dragons and fly away. These are one of the few groups that can actually travel willingly from cube to cube aside from either portal or base collision. Yes, they can. So rust dragons per second edition don't create hordes like other dragons. They prefer to roam from one place to another just looking for metals to eat. They're scavengers. They're not interested in creating a horde and the things that would normally be in a dragon's horde are typically metallic and they're not the iron of the cube so these rust dragons who eat metal are just going to eat it i kind of like the fact that they're more of a faux dragon than an actual true dragon anyway which also yeah i mean it fits so they are dragon like but not actual dragons yes so They have two breath weapons. The first is a 75-foot line of acid that, depending on age category, can be really, really nasty. Um, It's 2d6 plus 1 times age category level. So that means that it caps out for the Great Worm or whatever the highest one is as 24d6 plus 12. Ouch. And you can save for half. (laughs) <laughs> Woohoo. Again, going back to second edition, if you've got a wizard or a sorcerer with that D4 hit die, <laughs> you're screwed. Yeah. And then you have the other breath weapon, which is even scarier. It is a 75 foot cone that oxidizes and disintegrates any metal item in the cone that fails its save. This includes magic items. This would make the absolute best shock troop on this plane because all of your armor, all of your weapons just go poof. You're sitting there basically naked and unarmed as this angry army comes in to mow you all down. And the major armies here on Acheron actually keep stockpiles of wooden and stone weapons specifically, (laughs) specifically to fight rust dragons they've learned after a while (laughs) so in third edition one of the little things that i would actually bring in specifically with the worm and great worm the eldest variants any metallic weapon that is not at least a plus five an enchantment immediately corrodes and is destroyed whenever it makes contact with a rust dragon's hide oh and any weapon that is a plus five has to succeed on a save or likewise be destroyed 
And I would actually take that and I would scale that based on the age. So like a young rust dragon, it would be non-magical weapons. Then an adult would be, has to be at least a plus two. Okay. And then because you don't really have plus five weapons with the exception of like the Holy Avenger in fifth edition, the worm, the great worm would be like a plus three. You have to have a plus three weapon or otherwise it just gets eaten whenever you attack a creature with it. Okay, I like that. And if you're kind of wanting to do another plane jaunting type scenario, this would be a really good time to bring in some Sealy or Unsealy Fae because they are going to have those stone and wood weapons because they have the natural aversion, obviously, to iron. Yeah, but they would not be able to walk around on the cubes because the cubes are iron. That is true. So they would fly above. <laughs> but what I'm saying is if you could run an emissary back and forth, they would have access to some weapons that would be appropriate to this. I mean, that would be the ones right off, unless you're doing against some special, you know, lithic technology or something like that, I would see them having more of those types of weapons available. Okay. Two, obviously, druids would fare fairly well against these things because they don't use metallic weapons for their armor or their or their weapons either. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the last of the major creatures that you're going to find here in Akron are the bladelings. They are a humanoid race. As I mentioned, they're not originally from Akron, but they've resided here long enough to be considered native. So they're not native. They're local. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the Gautier are not originally from Carcerai, but they are now native to Carcerai. Their society is based around a theocracy where their priests, usually female, draw on the power of an unknown god or pantheon of gods. As I mentioned earlier, it is assumed that Amatsu Mikaboshi is the patron of the Bladelings, but it's never actually confirmed anywhere. And there's nothing that I could find that actually came out and stated who the god of the Bladelings actually is. And they're very secretive. They're very insular. They don't like to talk to outsiders. I can get along with them. I got it. I can respect that. They reside in Acanthus, which is the lowest layer in their city called Zoranor, in a location called the Blood Forest which protects the city from the constant blade storms of the lair. And we will talk about blade storms next week. And dear God, they're terrifying. They, they really are. So they look mostly humanoid, but they have these eyes that have this faint glow to them. It's described as glacial ice tinged with purple and their skin and bones protrude in the form of sharp blades of wood and ice and steel. So they are called bladelings because they look like they're covered in porcupine quills of blades. I'm saying angry Borg in my head. And whenever you cut them, their blood is the color and consistency of oil. Still saying Borg. <laughs> which, which is another reason why I'm saying that they're more akin to like Warforged. Yeah. So they were nearly exterminated whenever they first arrived because rust dragons are a thing. And they are a metallic humanoid race. That's a bad mix. <laughs> and they have since undergone magical experimentation and have developed complete immunity to corrosion and oxidation. Uh, natural selection. Magically assisted. Yes. It's more like selective breeding at this point. Yeah, husbandry. Bladling husbandry. Uh, yeah, bladling <laughs> husbandry. They are now shiny and chrome. So they are considered magical beings that draw the, from the power of Akron itself because they have the skin that, you know, is metallic and resists all this corrosion but it also makes them resistant to cold and fire damage and immune to acid damage 
and non-magical piercing and slashing damage. Interesting. Lightning damage still affects them normally. Fair enough. Bludgeoning weapons still affect them normally. Magic weapons still affect them normally. They take double damage from heat metal, and whenever they enter combat, they just sort of wade in, fists a-slinging, and they will make a beeline for who they perceive to be the strongest person in the party because they're trying to gauge the strength of who they're about to tangle with. Again, feeling like the Borg. Yeah. And as a once a day sort of thing, they are capable of doing a thing called a razor storm where they basically cause a part of their hard outer skin to just sort of explode. This is very similar to, was it the cleric? No, it was the monk. We had that stone form monk. Yes. That could shatter his stone skin. Obsidian fist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is, incidentally, this is the same sort of thing. I didn't know about this whenever I was creating that, but yes, this is the sort of thing. And it deals 3d12 slashing damage to each creature in i think it's a 30 foot radius it's pretty nasty that is pretty rough but they can do it once and then they have to wait 1d4 days for their skin to heal so they can do it again a good cooldown i'll take it and while they are still waiting for this to cool down they also lose their resistance to cold and fire damage and they take a reduction in their armor class No, that's a fair trade. These should be a playable class. I like them. Or a playable race. We might make that happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are homebrew podcast. (laughs) That sounds exactly like something that we can throw into patron exclusive content. Wink, wink. (laughs) Yeah, no, these are actually really, really cool. I love the aesthetic of them. Again, a fair bit. Obviously, if they're going to be a player race, we do want to kind of draw back some of those resistances a bit. Yes, we're going to tone it down a little bit. But definitely something that should be on the table. And then finally, all manner of birds call Akron home. Yeah, he burbs. So you have these enormous flocks of birds. There's ravens and vultures and gulls and bloodhawks and swallows and pigeons. Every kind of random bird that you can think of, they're here. And it's really common to see a giant flock of birds flying around in Akron because they will go and they will feast on the corpses of these battlefields. And one of the worst omens that you can possibly see on Acheron is a single bird flying in the sky. Yeah. And again, that ties back into that whole Morrigan thing, because if you see her, it's probably going to be a bad day for someone. It's going to be a bad day for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Fair it's the point. Morrigan. Fair it's the point. Morrigan. It's going to be a bad day for everybody but the Morrigan. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's going to have a good meal. Oh, yes. And the glorious dead. I mean, there is that. I suppose. All right. So that brings us to the end of part one of Acheron. Again, this is an exceedingly interesting plane. There's a lot of fun to be had here. There's a lot to work with. I know we did kind of go long, but just because there is so much to actually bring up and so many things you can do with this in so many different ways. So I hope you enjoyed it with us. We thank you for hanging in with us. Yes. Thank you everyone for joining us today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at undercommon taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommon taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. Our most recent write-up that was posted is the Orc Schlager, uh, which is a combination of creature and drinking game that we came up with with Kate from Of Mice and Men and Monsters. By the time this episode comes out, hopefully I will also have up 
the write-up with all of our traps from last week's traps episode. So do go over there, check those out. If you want to help support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron. We also have a Discord channel where you can talk to us directly. You can put up your homebrew or world-building ideas for some constructive feedback, or if you want to give us ideas for the show, please consider coming over and joining us on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord channel in the show notes. You can find our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We're on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google. Also, we are slowly making an expansion over to YouTube. So if you prefer more of a visual medium, we are going there. Our interviews will be posted visually on YouTube. Also, join us here on Twitter coming up really soon. We are going to take our own fun version of March Madness for you all. We kind of got something we've been tinkering with and we're really looking forward to bring to you all. So something different and new, hopefully kind of fun for everybody. Yes. And as James was mentioning, we are now doing video recordings of all of our interviews, which we are whenever possible live streaming on Twitch. So you can also find a link to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste in the show notes. Our next interview is going to be on Friday, February 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. We are bringing on Declan, who is the DM for the Romancing the Dungeon podcast. And in true Valentine's Day themes, we're going to be talking about incorporating romance in your TTRPGs. We're rolling for seduction. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, again, for joining us today, especially since we went long again. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week when we're talking the layers of Acheron. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.